Welcome to the Raising Your Game podcast. I'm Lewis Hatchett. In my own journey to professional sport, I was always interested in hearing about the insights, the stories and the ideas behind some of the best in the world. I wanted to know how I could implement those things into my own sport and life as well. So in this podcast, I'll be bringing you conversations from those in the world of sport and high performance, as well as my own experiences and expertise in performance and well-being that you can transfer into your own goals and aspirations. Whether that be in your sport or life, these conversations will give you something that I believe will help you at raising your game. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking with Tiana Bartoletta, two-time Olympian and three-time gold medalist, also two-time world champion. This conversation was absolutely everything that I'd hoped it would be. Tiana is such a lovely person and I'm so grateful that I got to meet her and chat with her. Really, really amazing conversation around her time as an Olympian, becoming, winning those gold medals, the journey where she came from, what it took to get there. And then also talking about her experiences as a yogi and how much yoga has influenced her life, not only on the track, but away from it. And again, not only for her physical sense, but her mind and how it allows her to live her life in a much more clear and much more controlled way. A lot of the themes around this podcast are about controlling what you can control. And we also go into the topic around racial inequality We talk about her experiences that she has faced with moments of what she describes as casual racism and then also very topical about the Black Lives Matter. But the conversation we have was just incredible and some of the topics that we we discuss and the ideas that we or the perspectives that we both have on it, I think are really, really impactful. And, And Tiana does a beautiful way in describing what she hopes to see and the experiences she has so this again is a podcast that like i said just held up all expectations and i'm so so excited to give this one to you and for you guys to listen there is definitely something for you to take out of this so without any more hesitation i give you tiana bartoletta enjoy Tiana Bartoletta, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm really, really excited for this this conversation. So thanks for tuning in late in the evening, well, later on in the afternoon where you are, and it's a little bit earlier for me. Thank you for having me, Lewis. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Look, I actually was going through sort of your achievements. I'd listened to a podcast that you were on um, recently, and there are so many different realms that we could go into in this conversation. There's so many different areas that, or like, that your your childhood growing up i want to skip to bobsled <laughs> um, <laughs> so i want to talk about what was going on with bobsled why everyone's going to know you for your track and field and your achievements on track and field but why bobsled what was going on there so the truth is why bobsled because i was done with track and field like really? it was so hard to make that Olympic team, the there was so much that I, I wasn't doing, wasn't enjoying. There was so much that I sacrificed to get to that point. 
And it was validated by being able to leave those games with a medal, a gold medal and a world record. I was like, I don't know if I want to do that again. Like, I don't know that I can even put myself through what it required to make that happen. And I also know that I'm very indecisive. And so it was, I knew that to say like, I'm going to retire would just be too permanent of a decision just for me to go home, sit on the couch. And then like two months later, be bored and be right back in it. Instead, I went to bobsled, which was a totally different thing and gave me the space and the break I needed from track and field um, without becoming dormant or sedentary. It gave me something to do without doing the thing that I no longer wanted to do. And that's how it started. But then when I got into it, it was like, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) (laughs) And it was really cool because that the I was a break woman and all of the the starting all of the skills that I developed to be one of the world's best block starters was exactly what I needed to be one of the best pushers. And I was really, really good at that. The thing that I had working against me was I just wasn't heavy enough. And as I kept racing and we crashed once, and that was crazy. As I kept doing these things, um, my competitiveness and my willingness to train and diet, all of that came back. And so bobsled really served as a a way for me to take a step back um, after the Olympics where I'm sure you've heard about the phenomenon where there's this there's this very real post-Olympic depression that happens and you're not sure, you know, what you want to do next. And you've waited your whole life for a lot of people for that moment and you get it and that moment is fleeting. It doesn't last very long and you're like, okay, now what? And so that was my way of dealing with that. Bobsled eventually led me back to the long jump too because I had quit long jumping because it hadn't been going well. But as I was launching myself into the back of the bobsled, because essentially it was a life or death movement, Mm. because if I miss the bobsled, I'm screwed (laughs) completely. Um, I I rewired myself to be able to do the takeoff for the long jump, which is a piece that I was missing. And so had I not reacted to that Olympic run in 2012, by going to bobsled, I actually would have never returned to the long jump and become Olympic champion in that four years later. Wow, what what an amazing little turnaround! And um, it just on bobsled, one of my coaches, he was my old physio. He actually worked with the British bobsleigh team for a while, and he was telling me about the training. Now, obviously, they're like you're a sprinter. A lot of the guys that were on that British team, they were guys that had potentially fallen off the Olympic team and then they were they were going into bobsled because the same requirements through leg power, speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that he, he made me laugh about was that they were, because you, like you said, you had to be heavy because once you get it moving, then it's just, you're done. Like you, you've got to steer, mm-hmm. it, steer it down and, and the heaviest one will get down there. And um, he was saying that they would do their training. They'd go through this real like strict regime in the gym and all their training was like power, like so down to like the macro like level, the micro level. And then on the way home, they'd go to Burger King to fuel up and like get heavy. I was like, well, this yeah. is, it's, it's kind of everything against kind of sports science would tell you about nutrition. And it's just exactly <laughs> get heavy, get fast and get in the bobsled. Exactly. That is, I really struggled with that because my whole 
training regimen revolves around being as powerful as possible while being as light as yeah. lean as possible, like my optimal weight, you know. And then I get over to bobsled, and I'm like, I'm really fast, I'm really powerful, but they're like, you need to go eat because you don't weigh enough. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> it was really difficult for me. And I, so I ended up needing to slide um, with sitting on lead plates because I wasn't heavy enough for the sled. So we had to add weight to our sled whenever I pushed it. Wow. So you were saying that once you 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 dealt with it by looking for something new to to do, like you were um, mm -hmm. you're constantly looking for something different to do. Where did that kind of come from? I know I'd heard for those that are listening, your story coming into sport growing up, you tried a lot of different things. Where so tell for the, the listeners like your your journey into sport and your sort of taste of sport as a youngster. Yeah, as a kid, we were just active. So we weren't even um, in any organized sports or club sports or summer clubs or anything like that. We just got out and moved. My father uh, was a boxer and is a martial artist. My mother was a dance choreographer. So everybody is very athletic in the family. My mom used to take us to explore caves and it's like, what what kid is like um i can't i can't come over i'm going to explore a cave this weekend <laughs> that was us so curiosity really plays a role in my willingness to just look and try to figure out what else i might enjoy what else might be out there when i got to middle school though that's when team sports were introduced and those that was the first opportunity for me to be on a team and i played volleyball i played basketball those were the fall and winter sports and then when spring came around, I assumed I was just going to become a wrestler because my father was a wrestler. He was a wrestling coach. I was a daddy's girl. It was like one plus one equals two. I'm going to the wrestling team. No problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, me and my father present this to my mom and she's like, no. <laughs> she's like, uh, no. And my dad's like, I don't see what the problem is. You know, I'm the coach. And I'm like, mom, I don't see what the problem is. Dad's the coach. And she's <laughs> like, no. And so the only other sport available was track and field. So track and field actually won out by default because I was not interested at all in the running. It just wasn't something I was all that familiar with. Didn't really care to. It looked like too much work for me. And the only reason I ended up there is because I wasn't allowed to wrestle. <laughs> so how did your so how did your passion so you you're talking about like you got passion there with your do, want to do it with your dad and you're wanting to like do, go and enjoy your sport with your dad then how do you trans how did you transfer that passion into something that you've just said you didn't really want to do like it's something you're not right. keen on doing where does that where did your passion ignite then like how does that start how did because there's going to be people out there that potentially um, mm -hmm. are looking at getting into something and and thinking like is it the thing that I want to be doing but you've now become world champion, Olympic champion through something that you've admittedly there. It's just said, I didn't want to start out in it. Right. And uh, to go even farther, the first day of practice, the, the coach who was my social studies teacher uh, just said, you know, track events, go stand over here. And it's our first time hearing about track and field. And she then says, field event athletes, go over here. And I raised my little hand. I said, does the track people does that mean running and she's like yes tiana it means running and i was like <laughs> i'll be over here with the field people and so i went to the field the field group 
And that's when they explained all of the events to us because in my small town, this is how you hear about track for the first time. I chose a long jump because it looked the most fun. That was it, that was the whole thing. And for like five, four years, I did volleyball, basketball, track, volleyball, basketball, track, that was it. And then once I got to high school, uh, towards the end of my sophomore year, my dad, he um, he asked to speak to me and he's a man of few words. So when he's like, I need to talk to you, everybody's kind of like, uh oh, what's going on? So he says, um, your mother and I have decided that you need to go away for university. We've also decided that we're not paying for it. So figure out how to get a scholarship. <laughs> and and I'm just standing there looking at him like, okay. And I say, if I figure this out, then you and mom should have to buy me a car because, you know, carry the one and doing all the math, Great you come out skills. on top. Great <laughs> Thank bargaining you. skills. Yeah. Yeah. So we shook on it. And then that is when I proceeded to really look at my skills. Um, basketball, I enjoyed it, but my ball handling skills were horrible. I was too fast for my ball handling skills. So I would get the fast break and then turn over the ball because I ran past it and have to come back and get it. And it just was a mess. Um, volleyball, I never learned how to serve overhand. So I didn't really, I could never, never make the varsity team. That was a requirement. My parents wouldn't pay for me to go to camp to learn how to do it. So there was a ceiling there and that left track and field. And so once I realized track and field was my best uh, out, um, best possibility to make a scholarship happen, I really focused on, okay, how do I get better? What do I need to do? What are the marks that are getting scholarships? Who do we need to call? Who do we need to talk to? What workshops do we need to go to? What camps? And my dad really played a huge role in basically asking all the questions about things we didn't know. So it just became a very deliberate and intentional process from that point. And that is really the starting point of everything else blowing up so then did you where because you've clearly identified that you were fast so there's something there that's that right okay i'm quick was there someone that then said right tiana you got to move into this event this is what you're and then push everything else away because there's i don't know if you've seen much of uh, david epstein and he wrote the book sport gene where he talks about generalists um sort of thriving in a world of of specialists and mm -hmm. and and i'm kind of a bit like when i turned pro in cricket i i actually look back at all the sports i was playing growing up and then there was a moment where you narrow down and you go okay well i've got to focus on one sport because you can can be a jack of all trades master mm -hmm. of none but i think there is such value in understanding the movements the understanding your body like and i mean we'll talk about yoga later but the understand and the awareness of getting your body and where how you move your body to then transfer and niche it down once you find what it is that you're potentially going to excel in where was was there someone that kind of told you to narrow down was it you who thought okay i'm going to narrow down there or how did it come about yeah, nobody pushed me to narrow it down. It That was a decision that I made. Um, so narrowing it down to track was my decision. Now, when it comes to how I got into the events that I got into within track and field, um, I was only a pure long jumper for one day. 
I jumped one time and they were like, okay, now you have to run the 100, the 200, the 4x1, the 4x2. And I was mad as hell, but I ran all the events. And we found out over time that I actually was quick. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that that kind of, it happened to me. Nobody Nobody really pushed me into anything. And I think that's for the best because my younger sister didn't have that experience. She was very much you're going to do track because your older sister does track and these are going to be your events and she's no longer in the sport and I'm still here after 15 years of being a pro so I think it it did save me that one it was like I came into it more organically and um, my events chose me as well wow so then fast forward to when you're 19 years old and you become world champion how first off how does that feel uh, and what happened to yeah. you as a person <laughs> after that happened doing it at such a young age? Yeah, that was the best and probably worst day of my life at the same time, because it's like I won. I'm queen of the world. I, I did this work and nobody thought I could do it. Not even my coach thought I could do it. And I did it. And I'm on this podium. I'm in Finland, which I never imagined I would go to. and it was surreal and I was so proud of myself. And at the same time, I was like, oh crap, what happens next? Mm -hmm. Because I was only in my second year in university. So like, what happens next? I really didn't, I didn't understand. And you know, immediately after, um, we are meant to go back to the athlete village and celebrate with Team USA, but I was too young to have the champagne. So I didn't <laughs> get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be with and, um, an orange juice. So I didn't really. <laughs> everybody else got the you know, sparkling apple juice, and everybody else got to party on my behalf. <laughs> but my coaches, I'm sorry, my AirPod keeps like easing its way out. My coaches um, immediately called my parents, who didn't bother to come because they didn't think anything was going to come of me being at this meet in Finland. So they were just at home chilling. And we called them via Skype, and we're just like, so she won <laughs> <laughs> and now we have to have some hard conversations about what happens next and it was in that moment I realized that there was such a thing as like I could go pro now I, which is something I knew of but didn't wasn't thinking about that for me because I was using track to get to college that was it I still didn't have dreams of the Olympic Games or you know being a professional athlete Wow. Until that moment when it was kind of like dropped on me yet again, kind of like the sprint events were dropped on me in middle school. <laughs> so did you did you believe that you could win that world championship? Did you think you could win it? I did think I could win when I um I just had a great year. The the year was just really going in a way where I felt prepared. I knew that I had become a really fearless competitor and I didn't believe that there was a reason why I couldn't I re I didn't know enough to doubt myself and my abilities I didn't know enough about my competitors who they were what their accomplishments were to kind of have that fear of them or that like awe of them I didn't know anything and so that kind of shielded me allowed me to be in my bubble and just go in with my little chip on my shoulder as like the youngest person in the event and try to beat everybody. Yeah. Um, the year before that, I had lost a lot. <laughs> I had a typical first year of university season, lost everything. But I went to the Olympic trials 
and took eighth. And it was like the scariest experience for me because they're all pros. Marion Jones was there. And I understood in that moment that I could compete with people I previously didn't think I was in the same class with. Well, even though I took eighth at the trials, that's actually what I took away from the trials. And so the following year, I didn't lose a meet because I, I believe that. And I think that belief is why I was able to win a meet nobody thought I would win. That's such a nice mentality to have, isn't it? That kind of playful youth of it and being, I've got nothing to lose, I'm going to do it. And yeah, I think as we get older, we we lose that and all the self-doubt. I miss in. it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, so yeah, did it. So what happened after that? Like, did you, because you're now, you've gone from being 19, trying to, uh, like, you're obviously essentially chasing a distance that you're going for in, in a long <laughs> jump to try and beat. But now everyone's chasing you. Now everyone's, you you're, you hold the cards, like, you've got the medal. Yeah. So how has that mentality then changed as you've you've come older do you do you try to go back to that sort of let it go just just perform and be at that yeah that sort of not caring yeah. attitude I guess yoga brought me back to that but that's not what happened afterwards it was I had this very naive belief that I had made it like I was good mm -hmm. I had the pro contract and I had this idea that I didn't have to do anything else because everything I had done to that point was enough to be number one, which is like the most stupid position I could have taken. And so I didn't, I didn't spend any time working on myself to be better or to level up because in my 19 year old brain, it's like, if I was already, I'm good enough to win. I just, I should just stay here and just mm -hmm. do no, improve on nothing because I'm already number one and it was just a really horrible position to take and it I proceeded to to slide downwards in my performance for seven seasons before I made the Olympic team in 2012 and, and got it and got it back but it's yoga though that allowed me to start approaching training and competitions kind of with like Let's just show up and see what we can do. Let's see what happens. As long as we give maximum effort, let's see what will happen. This person doesn't matter. That person doesn't matter. All that matters is your effort. And if I get a result that I like, great. If I get a result I don't like, great. The effort is what's important. Yeah, that's definitely more of a growth mindset side of it as well. Um, so, yeah. You, yeah, you've mentioned yoga and you're... you're um very public in talking about your yoga as a yogi and so I, I'm I obviously have spoken that I'm a yogi I do yoga and uh, meditation and I find it such a benefit for for both me when I was playing professionally and and uh, and now having dealt with my retirement and all sorts of things that that come in daily life how did why did you choose yoga what, what why, how was it introduced to you and but why was it that 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 you started yeah, so yoga started for me as, like, 
I occasionally would take it at the gym and yoga at a gym is cool if that's all you have, but it's very different from yoga at a studio. I mean, mm -hmm. because we were trying to, you know, practice mindfulness in between people dropping weights, doing arm <laughs> curls is very different. <laughs> it was very much about like, can you do this pose or not? Very much about the actual postures. When I seriously started practicing on a more consistent level, it was as a counter to my training because my training is very much about loading the central nervous system and making it wire and fire. And so what was happening was I wasn't sleeping because I couldn't turn it off. We're doing so much work turning it on and nothing to turn it off. And so we started with yin yoga and restorative yoga to kind of help bring me down to the parasympathetic system so that I could rest and recover so that I could actually benefit from all of the work we were doing. Because as you know, if you don't rest, you don't get better. No. Your body does all of its healing while you're resting. And it just wasn't happening for me. So I was, I was sleeping better and that's how it started, right? So I'm sleeping better, I'm doing yoga. And yoga is one of those practices where you start to feel the effects and you're like, I want more. Like, what else can I do? Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I wanted, I would look at the class schedule and see like, what other class can I try? So that's when I started to get into vinyasa and I use vinyasa flow as like active recovery. Yeah. Because for me, I don't do a lot of static stretching. I don't hold a lot of stretches. Everything is dynamic. And I think that's one of the reasons athletes tend to steer especially sprinters steer away from yoga is because they're thinking that they're elongating muscles in a way that's counter to needing to be able to fire and that's just not the case and so vinyasa for me was like i was comfortable with the idea that i was doing yoga but i was also moving quite a bit and then when you have really good teachers you're in um you're learning all of this philosophy while you're moving you're not even realizing that you're like learning how to be how to go in how to still your mind how to control your breath and it just like it got me and i just it's been keeping me ever since i think that's the a real big turning point for athletes i guess is when you you do it you you kind of unearth this part of you that you're like oh my god that's what i should feel like that's how i really mm -hmm should feel most days but i don't and you don't really realize the perpetual cycle that you go into when you're kind of like smashing your body all the time and really pushing the needle and you don't drop it down to like you said that parasympathetic state um and for those who are listening that don't really know too many um styles of yoga yin isn't more holding the postures for a longer period of time mm -hmm. as restorative is very re relaxing and then vinyasa is this sort of dynamic flow movement and that's interesting that yeah, I, I started with yin, actually. I think yin was the first thing that I did because I was like, do you know what? I just need, at the time, I was very egotistical as a male athlete. And I was like, I didn't get into yoga. So my journey was that I actually hid. I never went to classes because I was like, it's full of women. It's full of like ultra hippies. Like I don't fit in. <laughs> like I can't walk through the door. And um, mm -hmm. I would, I, I learned on my own and sort of found some stuff online and then I would hide behind a tree and do it. And, and, kind of, <laughs> and then I felt better, but then you, yeah. you, you feel amazing after it. And then you, like you said, you start to want more and you explore the different yep. types and how it can make you feel. And, and then the mind changes because you gain the control of your body, of the state you're in. And I think that is 
my personal experience and learning from it is that control not only of your body physically you begin to control yourself better because you get that spatial awareness you get that self-awareness but of your mind and where you're at like yesterday i'll give you a great example stressed out my mind about like podcasting and app and and websites and work Mm -hmm. and training and then i'm physically stressed from the training i've been doing and i'm like right this is when i need it right here we go 30 minutes tonight yeah and that's and then i go into restorative mode and and then i feel i had a great night's sleep wake up this morning way better and it's the knock-on effect and that's the that's the benefit you try to teach people about that where you gain all of this from from yoga and and do you know what? It is tough because it does get a certain stigma around it. It has been marketed mm-hmm. in a certain way. And I think for for men, it's it can be off-putting because it's almost the feminine end. But you don't have to yeah. make it like that. You can you can do it nope. with your beats on if you want. Like you can do it with whatever's going on around. And even when you were talking about that whole mindfulness with noise going on around you, I've turned a corner where I actually try to embrace those moments and think, well, actually, it's a bit of a challenge. It's it's a bit of a does play on the ego a little bit, but it's a challenge because if you're an athlete and you're under pressure and you've got a lot of distraction, have you got the ability to drown out that distraction mm-hmm. and then focus in on a point? Um, have you found it helped you with your mind in like big moments in in your athletics oh, when you came absolutely. into the Olympics? Yeah, absolutely. Because, like you said, being able to meditate in an airport or like in the in really noisy busy places is a skill you'll want to have as an athlete getting into the blocks in a stadium where people are going to just be loud and cheering you still have to be able to focus on you and uh you said something so important that there is this stigma and this idea and a lot of people just think that yoga is about like the headstands and the arm balances and all of that stuff and it gets a it's intimidating to people who really want to try it, but aren't really about all of that. And like you said, like, if you just get to the mat, if you just get there, you will feel better. Like you just hands down the mental awareness, the physical awareness, all of that. There is not a single thing that I've experienced on the mat that doesn't serve me as an elite athlete at all in any way and it's just like that's why i've started this the series to teach people yoga on saturdays because it's like Mm. no let me let me just pull reel you in a little bit and like help you get a taste of what i'm talking about and in in the least intimidating way possible because it's true like i can when i step on the long jump runway i have to control my breathing my anxiety and really um, be in my body, but also control my body. And after I start running, I have to have the awareness to hit all the positions and the movements that I need to hit to execute the jump. And all of that is can be cultivated on your yoga mat. Yeah, that that's all. I think that's uh, especially for something like long jump. And again, hundred meters mm-hmm. that is essentially a closed skill. Like you've just got to repeat yeah. that skill, and you've got to have your process and nail it and and go again. And a lot of the guys I, I work with, they have a lot of most most sports essentially will have a close skill element. And when that pressure comes on, it it goes to shit. Like that's when it falls apart. Yep. <laughs> it it just goes. Like and then the reflection after is like, if only I had control, if only I didn't take exactly. in that distraction. Did you find a gen a real shift as you got older, as you started practicing deeper and 
do, I always think that it's it doesn't necessarily stop those times of when it happens badly. It just improves the consistency of it doing better. Like you, you do better more consistently. Exactly. You do better. And a lot of the times that inconsistency has to do with feelings and thoughts and emotions and things that don't have anything to do with the action that we need to be executing. And so for me with yoga, as you know, you can see a thought but not be the thought or follow it down the rabbit hole or anything like that. And so I got more consistent just basically because nothing actually mattered, but the thing I needed to do. So even if I had that self doubt, like float across the landscape, I could just let it go and still be right here, ready to do the thing that I needed to do. And because I wasn't reacting to all the variables of my emotions or my volatile brain, I could be more consistent. So for sure, it helps you be more consistent. I, I think as well, outside of life, outside of like the, the track and outside of your sport, away from your work, it changes that. I think the moment I, I knew that it was kicking in and working in my life and changing me as a person was when uh, someone would cut me up in traffic. And mm. and, and, I'm, and usually you're like, well, I'm going to get you and... Get, yep. up behind, get up behind them and you're like nope that's cool let it go I don't what is what is me reacting in this way going to serve this situation it's not going to make it any better so let it go on by and then just focusing on on what I can control and again it, go, it all goes back to like what you can control and and at the end of the day like like you said whether it's the thoughts that are coming in your mind and and seeing them for what they are taking that third party view on them it re- you realize the bullshit that you tell yourself daily like i know i'm so glad you said that it's so true i remember the moment i realized i was living living my yoga was like i was actually in divorce court which is already an unpleasant situation for anybody and everybody involved and i i just remember like i was on the receiving end of somewhat of a character attack because that's just the way it goes and i thought may you be free of suffering like i literally wow. thought that and i was like wow. oh my god <laughs> well because everyone anyone else in that situation is going to be like f you like and and an attack take that personal attack and throw it back again and it always comes back to that ability to look at the logical mind and how you log- you logically deal with it again i don't know if you've ever heard of the book chimp paradox but it was it was used uh, for Team GB cycling guy called Dr. Steve Peters. Okay. Again, it's about the emotional mind. It was just very well uh, written in the sense of how easy it is to digest about the logical and the emotional mind, the limbic system. Mm-hmm. And um, but it, it, yoga brings that. Yoga brings that ability to just think logically under that and go, mate. That's amazing that you were kind of at that moment. I think that's a real test. That's a real, real yeah. test. But, a, but like you're saying, even just to bring it down to uh, something more relatable, yoga is like a compassionate practice in a lot of ways mm-hmm. for yourself. It's like you do not push yourself past where your body wants to go. You, you listen to your body. You, you learn how to meet your body where it is, which a lot of us don't do because we're so busy striving for the next level, for the next milestone that we don't we don't often pause to honor where we are or respect where we are. Um, and then we end up getting injured and the cycle just repeats itself. 
And I think that's, that's the overflow that I experience when I'm away from the mat. You kind of look at something and you're like, this is, this is what it is. And that's Mm. it. You don't have to prescribe or ascribe anything to that situation other than just to observe it. And I, a lot more, especially younger athletes just need to be able to go to practice one time, warm up and say, no, I feel good today. I'm going to do, I'm going to do this workout or, you know, my leg hurts today. I probably shouldn't do the workout and let that be that instead. It's like, Oh my God, my season's over. I can't do this. I'm going to suck or, or stuff like that. It's just a, a, just an abyss of emotion, negative emotion that yoga teaches you how to really reel in. So how do you, how do you tend to deal with your negative emotions that you get? Um, Obviously you, you've, COVID has like curtailed any training and schedule that you might have and future plans are kind of changed and schedules have changed. So how is it, how do you kind of deal with the negativity that, um, that you're facing sort of in your life and, and potentially in your own mind? Yeah, I don't want anyone to get the impression or the idea that I don't have negative thoughts because I yeah. absolutely do. Um, but I just try to do what I call mental hijacking, right? I try to reframe everything in a way that will serve me so that I can keep putting one foot in front of the other, even when it's hard. So like with this with this COVID pandemic and here in California, shelter in place orders that saw our tracks get locked and our gyms shut down and trying to figure out how to keep training because at the beginning, they were saying the Olympics would still go on. And so we were faced with a very impossible situation, trying to figure out how to remain fit with no facilities and still be ready for the Olympics. And one thing, I have this mantra that I always say to myself when I'm struggling, and that is everything is as it should be, because if it weren't meant to be, it wouldn't. And so everything is as it should be. And I kind of just kind of repeat that to myself. And once I kind of get that and like I, I hold on to that. I then look at the situation like, okay, since everything is as it should be, how do I need to, how do I now need to act? Yeah. And then I just really try to look at it from a practical way. So for training, it was like, okay, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. How do I still achieve the objectives I need to achieve to be ready for the Olympics? And that's it. I mean, I, it still sucked. I still kind of grieved about it for for a few days, but none of that stopped me from putting one foot in front of the other and trying to figure out how to keep moving. Yeah, I think that's the thing that some people can have a misconception about yoga, yogis and meditation is that you suddenly become like impervious to any negativity and that you're you're just never going to feel it. Do you know what I mean? And you think you're the most happy guy. Mm -hmm. You go, no, it's not the fact that I don't feel sadness. I don't feel anger. It's just that I acknowledge it when it's there. And then I can create action to change whatever's going on. I love that you were talking about your mantra there. Like mine is, um, mine is I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, which allows me to stop looking at potentially where I want to be. And then mm-hmm. just acknowledging that where I'm at, at right now, where I've come from, and that just stops that whole, especially in the world we live in right now, where it's so easy to see where other people are at and be like, oh, damn, that success is not what I have. And I want that and go, well, actually, I'm doing a great job with what I do. And um, mm-hmm. I find that's my my mantra. Do you use visualization at all? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially now because not um, sometimes the track that I'm using gets locked for some random reason and I have to go elsewhere. So the technical aspects of the workout might not get addressed on the in the physical sense, but like the brain doesn't actually care about that. So I can visualize the block star in the movements that I want. And, and even when like the track is open, if I spend some time visualizing the movements that I want to do beforehand, I have a better workout because I've already done so many reps before I got there. So yeah, that is integral. And it's important to not be doing something for the first time when you get to a competition. You kind of want to just feel like this is what I've rehearsed and now I just got to step in and play the part. And I haven't won a medal or, or gone to a single Olympic Games or World Championships where I hadn't already visualized the arena, what the walk would be like from the warm-up area to the call room to the starting line, what the journey from the finish line to the podium would be like. I do all of those things either physically or mentally before I ever step into the arena for the competition. That way you don't have to have that moment where you're like, wow, you can mm. just get in there and do what you need to do. So on the day, both at London 2012 and Rio, did that visualize something like visualization? What's your confidence levels feeling like on the day when you're there? Does that, did it, had it impacted that? Or I don't think you can get away from the stadium being full of people, but how did you feel confidence wise? No, yeah. I heard nothing. I I don't I don't remember a moment where I was like, oh, the crowd is really loud. I don't remember any of that. I had been listening all day to As a Man Thinketh um, in my audiobook by James Allen because my coach told me that if I wanted a medal in 2012 in the hundred, I needed to run um, faster than 1090, and my wow. personal best time at that point was 1092. And I wasn't, I was just really spent all day like, okay, this is how you run sub 1090. This is how you do it. And so when I got to the stadium, that's all I was thinking about. All I was thinking about was everything that I needed to do to run that time in order to leave with a medal. The funny thing about that is I ran 1085. I got fourth place. I did not get a medal. But the power of the brain just kind of being saturated with this is what we need to do to run this time, it really shielded me from all of the other things that I could have been experiencing walking into that stadium. And I just, I just overloaded it with all of the right things. And so I, I completely blocked anything that wasn't going to help me do that thing. So really focusing in on the process of what you're doing and just that's, mm -hmm. again, it's what you can control. You can only control the process. You can't control what's going on in the stadium. You can't control your other competitors. Just control what the controllables. That's what you've got. Right. And track and field uh, is one of the easiest sports in which to do that because it's just you. There's yeah. like nobody else. So it's the easiest sport to do that. But I also think it's with the Olympics, man, like that is it's a different level, like four years of training and four years of putting everything on the line for 10 seconds. 
that is like an investment that people do not realize i don't think that's the that's what really fascinates me about olympians because there's other sports that will have probably an annual tournament i mean you'll have world mm-hmm. championships that could be biannual but like you in the olympics where it's the pinnacle four years and waiting and for that one moment to get it just right it just is a different level of mentality and the mindset you have to have are there moments where you've throughout that period of coming up to those those games like where you thought you were going to crack or you thought this is it i'm i'm done and and potentially how you get yourself out of those moments absolutely i've retired so many times and quit (laughs) so many times only to get a good night's sleep and come back and start all over again well i i really like that you said that because that is every four years like four years of work for 10 seconds is how a lot of people think about it and i don't i don't think about it that way simply because it's still 100 meters (laughs) it's 100 meters it's still a long jump runway my approach is still the same it does not matter that we have attributed all of these qualities to this competition when it's the same damn 100 meters i run every other competition and Mm -hmm. in every training session so even though it is absolutely the pinnacle of the sport in order for you to be in that arena and to show up as your highest self, you have to see it as what you do every damn day. You yeah. cannot go into that arena saying, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's now or never. And if I blow it, that's four years down the drain. That is not a setup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just becoming a part of your that's when it's a beautiful kind of um like a flow state because you're it's a part of your identity like you don't i'm not doing the 100 meters i am a 100 meter runner like it's not um that's just such a nice way of looking at it rather than one event one event this is it just go it's another event it just yeah. has a lot more on it and again that takes the perspective away from it and and the, the probably the doubts and the criticisms and stuff like that but which event do you which event have you kind of found more satisfying i mean you've got the world record Ah. the the 100 meter the four by 100 and even that as a dynamic of doing it with a team so Mm -hmm. how do you which, which element do you find more interesting is there that team dynamic and being with everyone else and then being on your own running down that runway and or 100 meters yeah it's The long jump individual gold medal was like the biggest moment, I think, because just going all the way back to seventh grade and choosing it because I didn't want to do anything (laughs) else. It just it tied together so perfectly that I'm really I'm really proud that I stuck with something long enough to to achieve mastery on that level. So it means a lot to me. But there's nothing like celebrating a victory with other people and with your entire country. Like so running a relay has a very different feel than being out there by yourself. And I think I think we cherish those because it's not a team sport. It's very lonely. We all train in different places. We all have different coaches. And to be able to actually look at someone, give them a hug and say, we did it, feels totally different. But at the same time, getting a sprint medal is so satisfying because it requires so much of 
everything you have in such a short period of time, it's such an outpouring, it's so violent, it's so just guttural that when you are done, you're just like, damn. Mm. (laughs) And I think think the fans kind of feel that too, like just see all of that on display with all of the people that are in the race that so it's really difficult for me to choose like which which one because they mm. all give me something so different. It's like saying which kid do you love the most? <laughs> yeah. But even then I think parents have an answer. They just won't say. <laughs> yeah, they won't tell you. <laughs> they won't tell you. And I, I that's the thing as well. Like people are drawn to that hundred meters, whether it's the four by one hundred, the single of one hundred. Mm-hmm. Um I, I remember going to the world champs in uh in London when it was Usain Bolt's last run and uh or when he ran before he, he got injured in that like, final run of his mm-hmm. but uh the electricity for both the women's the men's four by 100 like that london stadium i really wish i was around for super saturday when that happened because that would have been oh yeah it, the acoustics in that stadium were unreal and like mo farah ran that day as well like oh my god it was mm-hmm. just insane and um and greg yeah. won the long jump yeah he did yeah and there's and there's so much going on that um that i think in athlete people forget when you when you're watching on tv it's one event every time that's on the screen yeah but, but when you're there like there is so much to watch you've got discus being hurled somewhere you've got long jumpers jumping you've got runners running mm-hmm. people crossing it's a it's an event it's a real event there's something going on for everyone yeah it's wild and london oh is is probably one of the best international venues because the atmosphere is electric. It's buzzing. People show up. People fill the seats. The stadium is almost always sold out. It's just, it's it's incredible. And that's exactly why you have to be prepared to compete in a place like that because it is something to marvel at. When I was able to sit in the stands as a spectator, I was like, oh my gosh, what an experience. But had I been like that down on the track competing, I would have been all messed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what are your kind of plans with everything now with with jumping and running and where you where you're at with it in your training now? Yeah, so I'm going to keep training as if this were a normal year. And so okay. if this were a normal year, we'd train through September and then shut it down in October and then come back in November and start training for the uh the olympic run so that i'm going to do the same thing so doesn't matter that there aren't really any competitions or or anything to peak for just keep doing that just so that um next year's schedule will be on time and we just every day is about doing the best you can with what we have in in a situation that's changing almost by the hour here yeah. in this country and that i mean like like we've talked about the theme is you control what you control so that's Mm. that's what we're doing and that's what i'm doing on a daily basis in almost every area of my life do you think the times are going to be different in in tokyo do you think we're going to see a dip in distances and times and just because the prep's been messed up i don't think so no okay i don't think so because the way we train for these is is even though there's four it's a four-year quad between olympics Though and the work is essentially cumulative, the the year of work is what matters. And I think as long as we get some consistency and facilities open, I think 
you'll find that we will figure it out. We'll figure out yeah. how to have those performances. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You do, yeah. I just feel feel so sorry for him, like that it being dragging out, dragged out like another year, and you're like, okay, right, I'm committing, and um, yeah, it's it's fascinating, and how you're dealing with it is amazing. Look, I wanted to move on um, and talk about some posts that you've been putting up we've spoken just before we start the podcast and you're very vocal about moments that you've experienced about casual racism now with everything that's going on in the world that we see over in america we're getting probably news bulletins every day with obviously your your election that's coming up this year a country that's fairly divided um especially looking from the outside in and then obviously what's the protests that have been all over the news um and in it, pretty much every major city of America. Mm-hmm. But you've again, you've been very open about your own personal experiences. Don't know if you can talk much about some of the experiences that you've had and kind of where you lie in in, in that realm, and and almost any messages you give to people and how to manage the situation, really. Yeah. So obviously, every day I'm black, <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like we're at a point of in society where I and I think it's just a perfect storm of everybody's at home everybody has a lot of time to to listen and look and deep dive into these things um that racial tensions really exploded because because we all were at home everybody saw Ahmaud Arbery get shot down on his run everybody saw George Floyd die with a knee on his neck like everybody saw it and now we the propensity to pretend we didn't see something is gone because we all know we're at home. Nobody's at work. Everybody's at home. Everybody's on their phone. Everybody's tweeting. And so the conversation was forced on us, essentially, and in a good way, because now we're talking about things and that, albeit difficult topics, people are talking. Um, But what I noticed was starting to emerge was um, the very the very common idea that these are one-offs or like these are just bad people who who did this and yeah. yes that is true but there are also very systemic things interwoven in the fabric of our country and so i wanted to share these casual racism stories because there's still people even people that follow me that don't believe racism exists they just think it can be attributed to someone just being an asshole one on a bad day and so it's important for me to to tell stories about how when I'm traveling business class in a line full of people I'm the only one that they ask to check the ticket to make sure that I'm standing in the right line or sometimes they don't even ask they just point me over to the economy and assume that I'm standing in the wrong line or you know going to a photo shoot and the person not wanting to do my makeup because they're not comfortable doing black makeup, whatever that means, because mm. colors essentially are colors to an artist, yeah. you think. So all of these little things that happen every day in my life that people who, honestly, I am happy, don't actually have to experience it, um, need to hear about. And that way, maybe upon hearing about it, they can be aware of it. And maybe next time, if you're in an airport line and you witness this happen, to a person of color in the line with you, you can maybe say, you didn't ask me for my ticket, what's up with that? 
and yeah. like really just kind of show up for a person in that way it doesn't require a, oh my god you're a racist moment or a confrontation just little things like that and we and to be able to recognize casual racism in that way will allow all of us to kind of start to eradicate it in the little ways that we can because honestly it's an overwhelming problem and yeah. i think that is part of the reason why so many people rather look away because it's we're thinking largely like how can one person even put a dent in this situation well this is how we have these conversations we draw your attention to what it looks like in everyday life because it's not every day you know that someone is dying at the hands of the cops it's not every day that we're going to have a cross burning in the front yard from the kkk but these little casual interactions do happen every day and i thought it was important that people who follow me um see that and also it's important to me because these are little traumas and little adversities that we have to deal with all the time on the way to the track on the way to the gym on the way to being that person that you're cheering for at the olympic games and i no longer want that part of my story ignored especially if i figure out how to have the strength and the wherewithal to overcome all that to make that team and to get on that podium so it's just been really important to just tell the whole story i think that's really um amazing how you describe it there like they're these little traumas that happen and i think about people um like friends who are not of color and they they will say that like they could have someone at work for example that says oh they said something to me and it just really got to me and then like and you're like well there you go there's how does that feel how does that feel mm -hmm. and how has that changed your day now look at the little things i think the 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 how people get so militant about when sort of like people say you're a racist and and because you do see the videos of people being aggressive and saying mm -hmm. you're racist and yeah that goes back to that whole emotional brain and, and attacking when you're being attacked and it just requires people to look at themselves look at what are the words that i'm saying how am i saying them where has that come from is it come from like i, I will I, I can admit that i've been around families and people in my life who are definitely saying racist things without even knowing that they're saying it because they come from a culture that has created that as the way in which they talk but mm -hmm. it hasn't allowed them to have the awareness of the way in which they're talking and people to then understand i think at the very basis of it it's okay to change your mind or like change how you talk how you are and who you how you think your belief systems it's okay to do that you Absolutely. The, the same way that someone can grow up as a devout catholic and then suddenly just change their mind and go well actually this is how i want to think and and yeah i think i think it's just a human thing where we 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 feel like we've ingrained our personalities in our the, our way in which we deal with things. But yeah, open yourself up to the ability to change like you would change anything else about you, like you would change your diet, like you would change the clothes you wear, like yeah. everything else. You can do that. I think that's the thing that I've seen that I see people get stuck with because they're like, you're attacking my personality, so I'm going to defend it and just for the sake of being what I believe is right yeah perfectly stated it's like they're just doubling down rather than just remaining open to the possibility that they're wrong 
or can change. And it's like, I've been so frustrated lately. And honestly, it's, it's contributed to my need to have to step away from social media for certain periods of time to just actually see that asking and begging our fellow countrymen to be not only not racist, but anti-racist is a controversial subject. Yeah. Like the, the fact that saying, the fact that someone could say Black Lives Matter as in like the black life, not the organization, but the fact that someone could say black lives matter and someone actually have a counter argument to my life mattering blows my mind. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> like, yeah, that one really. Every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it, I, d- I don't really, um, like I said, even out here in Australia, they there's definitely, you can see it with Aboriginal communities and sometimes the whole idea that yeah oh they're just an asshole that one person is just an asshole but mm-hmm. then what you find is underlying that is that there's this kind of stereotypical tarnishing of an entire race even and then it's and then they make it okay by saying that that one person is an asshole like it's like the, that's the counter argument to it mm-hmm. um i i what would you so i look after a group of young men i coach about 90 kids out here and they're a bag of fun and but (laughs) i think they're so they're so i've realized probably over the last few weeks of like how much of a sponge they are and how much they're in they really take in their environment and the environment they're in and and like i said whether it's um elder people that i've met in the in the past that have probably been products of their environment what advice would you have to say if you were standing in front of those young guys in how to deal with racial inequality and the the systemic racism that that, that is out there, regardless of the country you're in, I don't, I, I don't believe it is a an American thing. I think it is massively. Oh, absolutely. It, it's been yeah. it's been mm-hmm. it's been thrown out there because of social media, because of obviously there's a lot of racial divide politically, and it's just you can't go anywhere else other than social media and see it constantly coming from America with again the protests and everything. But what advice would you give? to those young guys of how to deal with that that racial injustice and inequality and and uh, systemic racism i would i would say to the minorities or the people the athletes of color in your group hmm. to keep to hold space for their friends right because i have a lot of white friends right now who don't know what to do or what to say and so even though we are very much kind of hurting and kind of really sensitive right now because everything is on the surface. Still try to still try to kind of be compassionate with that learning process while all of these conversations are happening. And at the same time, keep telling your story because a lot of times people think it's not happening because it doesn't happen to them. And even though it's not really our job to educate the masses, we can we can do that for the people we care about and mm-hmm. it's important that we do that because we need to still be a safe place for people to land and that's what i'm trying to do and yeah it gets exhausting and sometimes i have to take a break but i've i've realized i've come to realize that people especially like on the topic of white privilege um, people who don't really who've had a really hard life and all of us go through a lot of things 
dismiss the idea of white privilege outright because they're like what do you mean i have received no handouts and we're like that's kind of not what it means this is what it means you know so there's a lot of like holding space for just keep you got to keep telling your story because the more you talk maybe the more it'll be received and you'll listen for the people in your group that aren't people of color be open to the possibility that somebody else's experience is exactly what they're experiencing. Yeah. Like, don't try to counter the experience with no, that's not right. That's not happening. Don't do that because that's not your life. You don't know. Mm. And if someone cares enough about you to tell you to share that part of their life with you, don't respond by being dismissive of their experience. Yeah, I think that is really well put like how you you see people knock it back going no that's not how that's not what's going on i, I wouldn't do that i've never done that so it doesn't happen right well it's like well mm -hmm. no they're, they're it, just because you're not doing it doesn't mean it's not out there and then you're almost normalizing it by saying that so and how yeah disrespectful is it just to say whether we're talking about racism or any subject like no your mm -hmm. your experience can't be true so right it just is the most like, okay like, doesn't it just doesn't make sense look I, I yeah i i really hope come november or whenever the election is going to happen in in america november 3rd <laughs> november 3rd um that something sort of i, I guess positive because it just looks like it, it's madness daily sort of what's coming in and out of america politically it's been tough yeah it's yeah been really I, tough yeah i imagine and friends of mine and people I've, I've worked with in america just kind of getting to the point where it's like tiring and it's really tiring and We're exhausted exhausted yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um i wanted to i wanted to just just before we finish i don't want to take up too much more of your time um you're a big writer you write a lot and you have your blog <laughs> um uh, where did your is is having that creative outlet a really great escape for what you do? Do you feel it's something? Is it, I think I even heard you say like you wanted to be a writer before you even wanted to be an athlete. Yeah, I've been writing for longer than I've been an athlete. I started writing when I was just a, a kid, writing horrible stories that my parents lied to me and said were good. Like it started way <laughs> back then. And um, it, I think writing for me has always been an outlet. Um, you can't probably tell now, but I actually don't like to talk. <laughs> and so <laughs> I such a good job. didn't really, yeah, I didn't really develop the ability growing up to communicate verbally, uh, to articulate anything that I was feeling because I just didn't enjoy communicating like that. And so even with my parents, if they upset me, I would just excuse myself, go to my room, and I would write them a sternly worded letter. And I would <laughs> fold it up, put it in an envelope, and I would slide it under their door, and they would read this letter from their daughter about how they had upset her. And this is how I communicated <laughs> for a long time. It's just like, I would never say it out loud to them, to their face, because I couldn't handle, I think, I think the possibility of confrontation was like too intimidating for me. So I would write the letter, I'd slide under the door and I would go back to my room and I would wait. And interestingly enough, even in my blogs right now, especially if I'm tackling a difficult or uncomfortable subject, I write it, I push publish, 
I gently close my laptop and then I like go hide in my room for a little bit. It's like the same thing. I've been doing this forever. Wow. The only difference is I've like, I am a little bit farther along the mastery journey in my writing than I am in athletics because I've been doing it for way longer. Yeah. Wow. What, where do you think that, that, um, so you still you're still closing the laptop, run away and hide, and just hope someone like is that is that through just you hoping people will like it or what have I done? No, it's it's not really that I hope people will like it. It's more like I try to write really raw and vulnerable and truthful, and it's not always comfortable, but I do know that it's helpful to people mm. who who read it. Uh, I know that because I get so many emails and messages privately about each blog post. So even if, you know, the like wasn't clicked or the retweet button wasn't pushed, I know who is reading this and who is helping. And so I continue to kind of do things that uh, are slightly uncomfortable for me or make a little vulnerable. And I push through that discomfort, but that doesn't stop me from like needing to go like hide a little bit and like, pump myself back up after I put it out there yeah it's quite a nice little learner that as well like you're kind of constantly trying to push yourself in that discomfort and that's going to allow you to grow I also really like your blogs how they're laid out they're like really easy to to digest like the shorter sentences and and just bigger spacing it's just easier to read for someone that will look at like a big chunk of paragraph and go oh no uh, that's not exactly nice. and skim i actually i stole that from one of my favorite uh non-fiction writers rob bell and i i realized that he was like the only author my dad like would devour too and it had a lot to do with the spacing allows for it to feel conversational it allowed room mm. for you to create your own thoughts in the gaps the pacing um allows you to emphasize without using overly using punctuation and commas. And I know that because I read so much, if I do come across a huge paragraph, sometimes I'm like, eh, don't really read all the words. So that's for people that don't really like to read. So it's like walking, kind of holding your hand through something. And also it's easier to read on a screen and all we're doing is reading on screens these days. So uh, yeah, it's very much, it's very much deliberate. And I used to write poetry was my beginning. And so all of my blog posts to me are long form poems in a way. And so that's why they're laid out to be yeah. both uh, visually and contextually appealing. Yeah, now you say that they do actually look like much longer poems. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's not a fluke that that's happened that way. Look, um, I just want to leave with one final question. I'm so thankful for your time. Um, it's been an amazing conversation. Um, if there was one bit of advice that you had got in your career um, and it stuck with you to allow you to be sort of this best version of yourself, what, what advice would that, that be? It actually came from someone who hasn't, someone who works for my sponsor nike he told me you have to win and lose the same way with grace and when he told me that after i took an embarrassing loss at world championships in 2007 it kind of planted the seed in that if i have to win and lose the same way that's most likely because the preparation was the same and the outcome just 
wasn't guaranteed. And so that really was the beginning of shifting focus from the outcome to the grind, to the work, mm -hmm. to the effort. And that was that's really important to me. And I think if younger athletes or even professional athletes right now take a step back, and I know our contracts are very much like, if you do this, then you'll get this, very much not set up to support us focusing on the daily grind. If we do that, we'll get what we're meant to get. I mean, mm -hmm. there's just, there's, there's no amount of wishing and hoping that is going to make that metal materialize. What will better your chances for making that metal materialize is what you're doing today and what you did yesterday and what you'll do tomorrow. Do you think there's- And all of that is important, regardless yeah. of whether you get the medal or not in the end. Yeah, just on that, do you think there's something that differentiates between that ultra high um, achieving athlete and kind of the one that gets like seventh, sixth, do you, do you know what I mean? The one that's the different, What what is in your experience, what is that difference between that gold medal and seventh? Oh man, honestly, I'm of two minds about this because it just can go either way, it can go any way on that day. And so many things had to go right for me to walk away with that medal. I can't actually say that there's like, that I'm so drastically different from the person that got fourth. I really can't, I really can't say that. The only thing that I know for sure is that I absolutely was not focused on winning the medal on that day. I was absolutely wow. micro-focused on all the little things that needed to happen, and I hoped it would culminate in a medal. Mm. And I think that might be the difference. You, you really do, like Yoga says, have to release the outcome. You have to just, you are not entitled to the fruits of your labor. You are mm. obligated to labor, but you are not entitled to the fruits of it. And I think that made the difference for me. Oh, that's a such a great way to to end this conversation. Like that's <laughs> such a nice little uh, nice little snippet. That um, look, thank you so much for your time. Where's the best place for people to find you, um, and interact with you and get in touch with you if they want to get in touch? Thank you for your time first. And I think the best, most central hub, so to speak, would probably be Instagram because from there. You can find anything as linked to everything else I'm doing. So that's Tiana.Bartoletta on Instagram. Perfect. Yeah. And you're, when do you, what times do you do the Saturday yoga? I don't know what time your time, but I yeah, do your it. Time. <laughs> I do it on um, Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. California. That mm -hmm. is very, I think yep. that's very obvious. I might be one in the morning or something like that here maybe <laughs> oh man yeah if not i'm definitely very late tune night in. yoga <laughs> yeah, yeah if not i'll definitely tune in i'll just double check that but again thank you so much tiana it was uh it was so nice to meet you and great to chat with you thank you so much same to you namaste <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Raising Your Game podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts where you can leave a review. The people that are leaving reviews, they're so amazing. They're awesome. And I'm so thankful for the community reaching out. But let me know how you're getting on with this podcast. If there's something that you've learned, if there's a specific episode that you've enjoyed, or perhaps something that you'd like to hear from in the future, 
just head over to Apple Podcasts, scroll all the way down. You can choose which star review you wish to give it. You can then write a review and then click submit. And it really does help with the growth of this podcast. So I thank you and appreciate everything that you guys are doing as listeners for this show. So this episode was really based around a lot of yoga. And if you are someone who is looking to get into yoga or you're an athlete that wants to get into yoga, but you just don't want to go to a class, you're not sure if it's for you, you think it's too hippie, you think it's not for you, but you know it could benefit your sport and also your well-being and your performance as well, then I've got something for you. The Sport Yogi app is coming out very, very soon. This is something that I wanted to create having gone through the journey of not having something out there for me as an athlete. So I wanted to create that myself. So I trained as a yoga teacher, a mindfulness teacher, as well as a breathwork coach, and then implementing all of the things that I know from being a professional athlete and my experiences around that to create something for people in sport that they can use to improve their body and their mind. This is really aiming towards adding into all the different elements that you are working on to improve your performance, but this is going to help you look after your well-being as well. So there are things like mindfulness sessions or mind training sessions that you can use to just listen to where I run you through some deep breathing exercises that you can use to calm, de-stress, bring yourself down into this much calm, relaxed state. You can gain more focus, concentration, also working on things like improving lung capacity through breathing exercises, as well as a load of different other things. I'm really, really excited about this because there are so many different things that I have planned and what I want to go on to it. But you can also work on the physical elements, so flexibility, mobility, balance, strength, all things that are going to complement your training program and will help you in recovery, in your warm-ups, and just allow you to prepare, perform, and recover even better. So if you want to be one of the first people to try this out, then head over to sportyogi.com and at the homepage, there is a place where you can sign up to find out more details, receive, be one of the first people to receive this app when it comes out. It is not far away. So head over to sportyogi.com. You'll be one of the first people. I'm really, really excited to bring you this. It's only going to get better. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys think. So always let me know. Head over to at the Sport Yogi on Instagram and let me know if there's things that you you want to be working on, some areas that you find that are tough in your sport, around your well-being and your performance, and I'm there to help you out. If you want to start somewhere a little bit simpler, then I have a free hamstring flexibility guide that you can use in your own time. I suffered from really tight hamstrings and most athletes I know it is a pain point for them as well. They suffer with tight hamstrings. You can't touch your toes. I've been there. I know what it's like. And I wanted to create something using my expertise and my experiences to give you that you can use in your own time. You don't have to go to a class. You can just do it in your bedroom if you want. And it's going to allow you to loosen up those hamstrings. So if you want this, I'll leave the link in the show notes, but you can also head over to sportyogi.com forward slash hamstring dash flexibility dash guide. And there you just literally let me know if you want it and I will send it over to you. Just drop in your email address and I will send it straight to your inbox. So there you go. That's something that you can just start off with, a real simple place to begin with. Also, again, if you want to sign up for the app, then it is sportyogi.com. Thank you once again for listening to this episode. It was an amazing show. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation with Tiana and I look forward to seeing you again soon.